You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. October is ADHD Awareness Month. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is a neurodevelopmental, excuse me, neurodevelopmental disorder, meaning it affects the growth and development of the brain. It affects a person's memory, emotions, ability to focus, pay attention, and organize, and much more. And these symptoms can hurt someone's career potential, financial security, relationships, and overall mental health. But it doesn't have to be that way. Our next guest was diagnosed with ADHD as a child and now shares her experiences and advice on living with the condition. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you or your child have ADHD? What do you wish people understood about having it? What's most challenging for you? What tools, uh, workaround solutions have you come across? Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Jessica McCabe is the creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD and author of the book How to ADHD, an insider's guide to working with your brain, not against it, which comes out in January. Jessica, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited we're talking about it. You were diagnosed with ADHD, I think, when you were uh, 12. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and how ADHD affected your life? Yeah, like a lot of girls, I got diagnosed because there was a boy in my life that got diagnosed first. So my cousin was very stereotypically ADHD, by which I mean, he had the more externalized symptoms, bouncing off the walls, getting into trouble. And he got he got taken to a doctor who looked at his mom and said, hey, um, you, you might have this too. So he actually evaluated both of them and she was diagnosed. And she was, you know, an adult at the time. Um, but my mom looked at me and said, you know, at 12 years old, you're a lot like your aunt, let's get you checked out. And my very first doctor said, well, how did she do in, in elementary school? And my mom said, well, great. She got straight A's. She's a really gifted student. And the doctor said, well, she can't have ADHD. She's too smart. And thankfully my mom uh, <laughs> knew better than that. And so she said, thank you for your opinion. Let's see a specialist. And it turns out I was diagnosed with ADHD. And then that actually leads into my next question. Some of the most common myths and misperceptions about ADHD. I think you just laid out one right there. Well, if it seems like this is a smart kid who did fine uh, to start school, it can't be ADHD. What are some of the most common myths you run into? That's exactly it. That's a really big one. Uh, but you can be gifted and have ADHD. There's actually a term for it. It's called twice exceptional, meaning you have this giftedness, but you also have some sort of disability that impacts your ability to learn or perform in some way. Um, that's a big one. Another one is that people with ADHD are lazy or that it's a matter of willpower. There are differences in the way that the ADHD brains work uh, in many ways, including with motivation, but it's not lazy. I can't tell you how many times somebody's come to me and said, well, I, I wanna go get checked out. I wanna look for a diagnosis, but like, what if, what if it's not ADHD? What if I'm just lazy? Because it's something that we've heard our whole lives because people just don't understand that ADHD brains are motivated by different things. Um, another, another one is that sugar causes ADHD or bad parenting causes ADHD. Um, there's a lot of myths bouncing around about that. There's also a lot of myths around the, the stimulant medication that we're quote unquote drugging our children or that we're giving them, you know, essentially speed, um, there, <laughs> or that even that the meds are, um, in some way habit forming taken at the doses that they are prescribed at if you know they can be misused but taken at the doses they're prescribed at they're actually not addictive um and so one of the things that my community says a lot is like if my meds are so addictive why do i keep forgetting to take them <laughs> can you talk about the the most common adhd symptoms and i understand in part from watching some of your your talks on youtube 
they, it might not look the same for everybody. Yeah, so there are differences in presentation. Um, there's three presentations of ADHD. There's primarily inattentive, there's primarily hyperactive and impulsive, and then there's combined type, which means you qualify for enough symptoms from each that you would qualify for both conditions. Um, and so the symptoms are going to show up a little bit differently, but the three main symptoms that get treated, get diagnosed and treated are inattention, hyperactivity, and impulsivity. Um there, there's a lot of research to suggest that emotional impulsivity and emotional dysregulation is also a huge part of the disorder. Um, but unfortunately, that's not yet in the DSM criteria. So it leads to a lot of misdiagnoses or people being on, you know, under supported in some of those areas that they struggle most um, in relationships or getting in trouble at work for emotional outbursts. Talking to Jessica McCabe about ADHD. Her YouTube channel is How to ADHD. She has a book of the same name coming out in a couple months. You can join in with your questions, maybe your own experiences at 800-642-1234. Jessica, the main message I've taken away from from watching uh, some of your YouTube channel is you're not doomed. There are ways to live with and cope with ADHD (laughs) and thrive with ADHD. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, no, you're definitely not doomed. Um, ADHD, a lot of the ADHD traits are strengths in the right situation. So the the divergent thinking that we experience, um, which is basically distraction, right? We come up with a ton of ideas. We have a lot of um, a lot of divergent thoughts. A lot of outside the box thinking happens with ADHD. And yeah, that can take us off topic. It can make us get distracted, but it can also make us really innovative, great problem solvers, um, very creative in general. Um, so there are a lot of traits like that that can can flip to the negative side um, if, if they're unchecked or unsupported, but they can also be very positive. And even the places where we really struggle, um, there are a lot of ways to mitigate those struggles. So medication is highly effective. It's actually one of the most treatable mental health conditions with medication, but there's also ADHD coaching. There are tools and strategies. And so one of the things that I love about ADHD is that you can really take advantage of the strengths and do a lot to mitigate the places where you're impaired. Can you talk a little bit about mitigating the places where you're impaired? Uh, impaired. Okay. You, su- you suggest like even uh, seemingly simple things like making lists and, and other ways of kind of knowing where you're going to go wrong can help a lot. It can. So mindfulness is really, really helpful with ADHD. We tend to not always be the most self-aware. And part of that, I think, is that we're always... Um, kind of jumping from one crisis to the next. So it's really hard to be, um, <laughs> to be thoughtful and like look at the patterns of behavior when you're just, you know, running and putting out one fire after another. But if you're able to slow down, if you're able to improve mindfulness, if you're able to work with a therapist or an ADHD coach and take some time every week um, or every couple of weeks to really look at what's going on, what are the patterns, you know, wh- where can we maybe do some preventative forestry <laughs> um, where we try and you know, catch some things before they become a crisis. Like it can, it can be really helpful. Um, I forget what the question is though. I, I got off tangent. Oh, no. you're, you're getting into that. Uh, just some of the, the practical ways, mindfulness, uh, one of those ways to, uh, to cope with the, some of the problems you mentioned. Oh yeah. To cope with some of the problems. Yeah. And then there's some really great, great strategies that can be helpful for anybody, but are especially important for people with ADHD. So yeah, lists is one of them, but, um, (laughs) there's a joke in the ADHD community, like, yes, I make lists and then I make lists of what my lists are. And then I lose those (laughs) lists. So a lot of the strategies that are helpful for people with ADHD support our executive function in some way. 
um, support our memory, support our ability to transition between tasks, support our ability to plan and prioritize and sustain our effort toward long-term goals. The problem is a lot of these systems also require some level of executive function. So while they're very helpful for us, they can also be hard for us to use, especially without support. So it's it's not only good to figure out what strategies can be helpful for you, it's also good to put supports in place to help you be able to use those strategies effectively. If lots of callers, let's uh, bring them on. Mark starts us off in Sheboygan. Mark, hi. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I have ADHD, and I found out via my son who has ADHD. He has Asperger's, or Asperger's is an antiquated term, but when he was eight years old, he was bouncing off the walls, and he had been bouncing off the walls for quite some time. And we decided to um, get him tested, but they tested me first at the age of 40. And I had been dealing with it for so long, I had uh, dealt with it. And the psychiatrist said, you have ADHD. And so <laughs> it, it, it was something that had been going on for so long with me that I had adapted. And um, sitting in the front of classrooms, making lists, that kind of thing. And then my son, we we were able to get his ADHD under control very well with medicine. And a lot of people are, are afraid of medicine, but I don't think medicine is necessarily something to be afraid of um, when uh, taken in the right context. Mark, thanks a lot for sharing uh, your story and your son's story as well. Uh, Jessica, you, you've said the same kind of thing. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier, medicine, not something to be scared of. You might need to do more than just the medicine, but it can be an important part of the picture. Yeah, um, there's actually been long, uh, long-term long studies on this. There's one that's really famous called the MTA study that found that medication alone is not enough. The best outcomes for people with ADHD are a combination of medication and other treatments like therapy. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, even dialectical behavioral therapy can be really helpful for ADHD. Um, and again, I think I mentioned coaching, finding tools and strategies that work for you. All of this stuff is really important. And medication is one tool, and it's a very powerful tool for a lot of people, but it is only one tool. And it can't it can't help with a lot of other things. Uh, it can help you focus, but it can't necessarily help you figure out what you should be focusing on. Um, so there's, it's really important. And and what, what Mark was saying is it's just such a common story. A lot of parents are diagnosed mm-hmm. when their kids are diagnosed because we understand ADHD better now, and it's thankfully getting recognized more and more. But what that means is a lot of people who got missed when they were kids are now getting diagnosed when their kids are. Thanks a lot for that call. October is ADHD Awareness Month. We're talking to Jessica McCabe, creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD, author of a forthcoming book of the same name. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Were you diagnosed with ADHD as a kid or maybe later in life? Why do you think it took so long if you weren't diagnosed into adulthood? Share your experiences or your questions for our guest at 800-642-1234. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We're picking up our conversation about ADHD Awareness Month. It is this month. Our guest is Jessica McCabe, the creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD. Let's go back to your calls at 800-642-1234. Tristan is with us in Madison. Tristan, hello. Hey, uh, my my name's Tristan. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin, sixth grade. Uh, I use cognitive behavior, and I feel like it's made a big impact on my life. Tristan, I, 
Uh, Tristan, thanks a lot for the call. The line's breaking up a little, but Tristan, a younger sixth grader, I don't know if you caught that, and using cognitive behavioral therapy. You've mentioned that a couple times, Jessica. What does uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, look like for someone like Tristan and like you with ADHD? Cognitive behavioral therapy can help with some of the emotional um, symptoms of ADHD. It basically, there's a CBT triangle, right? So um, we have our thoughts, we have our behaviors, and we have our feelings. We can't directly change how we feel. If we're sad about something, we're going to be sad about it. But what we can change is our thoughts or our behavior. And if we change one of those two, that can impact how we feel. So if we go to an event and somebody, um, you know, if we, if we offer somebody that, you know, hey, do you want to dance with me? And they say no, we might feel sad, right? But then what we do next is going to impact whether we stay sad or whether our feelings change. Um, so if we, you know, go stand by the punch bowl and are really sad about it and bring up all the other times that we've been rejected, then that, you know, we're going to stay pretty sad. But if we, um, if we can kind of look at the patterns over time and notice, like, what are we feeling and what's pre- what's preceding that? What thoughts are be- preceding it? What behavior is preceding it? We can actually start to uh, adjust how we feel. Um, which is really helpful for those of us with emotional dysregulation and really big feelings, um, as those with ADHD tend to have. Tristan, thanks a lot for calling in. Before we go back to our callers, Jessica, I see that uh, boys are way more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD than our girls, which could mean boys are more likely to have ADHD or we're worse at diagnosing girls with ADHD. Do you have thoughts on uh, which which of those options it is? Yeah, I mean, we definitely are worse at recognizing ADHD in girls. And until we get better about that, I don't think we're going to really be able to tell um, the prevalence rate between boys and girls. But it's definitely not, uh, it is definitely underdiagnosed and undertreated. Um, so it's it's underrecognized for a few reasons. So the ADHD symptom profile in girls tends to look different from the male symptom profile. So females tend to be more inattentive and less, less hyperactive impulsive. We also tend to um, be better at developing compensatory strategies. So we work really hard, perfectionistic behavior, socially adaptive behavior. There's a lot more pressure on on girls and women to be good, to fit in, to be neat, to be organized, all of these things. And so we, we, we may work on it a little bit harder. Um, and we tend to have co-occurring internalizing problems. Um, I think probably partially as a result of all of this social pressure, we end up having anxiety or struggling really hard with depression. And that's what often gets recognized instead of the ADHD. There's also a huge gender bias. Um, teachers and parents both have a significant gender bias when identifying symptoms in children with ADHD. So, you know, if there were ADHD, I think there was one study where teachers were presented with ADHD like vignettes and just the gender of the child's name and pronouns were changed. Um, All the symptoms were the same, but boys' names were more likely to be referred for additional support and considered more suitable for treatment. So it is definitely going under-recognized, definitely going under-diagnosed. And for a lot of women, we're not recognized until we have a baby or, you know, or our kids get diagnosed or, you know, we start med school and suddenly all these compensatory strategies really aren't enough. And the ADHD becomes a lot more evident. Let's go back to our callers. Lauren is with us now in Milwaukee. Lauren, hi. Hi, um, I'm calling from Milwaukee. And I think it's so interesting that you're talking about the underdiagnosis of ADHD in girls and women and those compensatory strategies. Uh, I am in one of those situations currently, I have the inattentive type of ADHD um, and also like anxiety, depression, and perfectionism, which is so interesting to hear you say. Uh, so I've just gone back to school for the first time. I would really like to be a graphic designer. Um, and for the first time in my life, those compensatory strategies are failing me and they're not enough. And I'm really concerned about 
you know, failing out. Um, I tend to do a lot better with physical work and activities where I'm moving around, but this is something that I want to do, and I just struggle with sort of the initiating really cognitive tasks. Do you think there are some jobs or fits that are just poor fits for people with ADHD, or do you have any words of wisdom? Lauren. Yeah, I, I think that a lot of it, yeah, there are some jobs that are going to be naturally a better fit for ADHD brains, jobs that are physical, jobs that are urgent, like um, being a paramedic or, you know, doing some sort of things that, that is urgent and crisis. Like I was a great waiter. I was amazing at waiting tables. Um, but I, I wanted to write a book the last couple of years, and it's arguably one of the least ADHD friendly <laughs> things you can do. So, but I was passionate about it. And so if what you're doing is something that you're passionate about, I think that we can break through a lot of the obstacles. Obstacles that we would otherwise face because we care enough that we want to. Um, ADHD brains tend to be motivated by things that are urgent um, and things that are new or novel. So there are careers that are kind of naturally that way, but also we're motivated by things that are of personal interest. So if it's really meaningful to you, then I say go for it. And what you can do is recognize the places where it's not going to be as ADHD friendly and get the support, get the accommodations, get, get, get the help you need so that you can pursue whatever it is that you want to pursue. Thanks a lot for the call, and good luck to you, Lauren. Obviously, Jessica, uh, writing a book was a challenge uh, with your ADHD. It's coming out in a couple <laughs> months, so you, you found something that worked. Can you share one of the the secrets you figured out, like to how to keep rolling on what's a difficult project for anyone, much less somebody with ADHD? Yeah, so... Uh, there's there's something that happens for a lot of people with ADHD where people are like, oh, well, you have ADHD. It's okay. Get it to me whenever. And that's very kind. It's also really disabling. What people with ADHD need is more accountability, not less. And so what I needed was, and I put this in place, I needed a weekly check-in with my editor. Any week that I was supposed to be writing, I, I set it up so that I would have to show her whatever I had written that week. And sometimes it was really embarrassing what I showed her. It was, it was an absolute brain dump. It was word vomit all over a page. <laughs> and it was really embarrassing. But if I hadn't had those weekly meetings, I wouldn't have written anything. And so it was a really cool thing for me to put those you know, little accountability pieces in place from the beginning. And even with that, like I used so many tools. I used half the tools that I, you know, that I talk about in the book to write the actual book. And sometimes I had to go back to chapters I had already written and be like, how do I do this again? Um, and use those strategies because I would forget. And that happens a lot with people with ADHD. We have these strategies and we know what to do, but we'll still forget to do it in the moment. So being able to go back and reference was really helpful. Um, but yeah, that extra accountability is really, really important because um, otherwise, we end up trying to do everything at the last minute when suddenly it becomes urgent. And it turns out, you know, there are some projects you can get away with that. Like a lot of us get away with that a lot in high school. But then you get to college and you're like, oh, shoot, like we're at the point where I can't really pull it off the night before anymore. And then you go to writing a book and it's like you can't pull that off writing it the <laughs> month before. So you really need to put that accountability in place. Talking to Jessica McCabe. That book she mentioned comes out in January. It's called How to ADHD. Time for one more caller. Jim is with us in Middleton. Jim, hi. Hi. So I was a high school math teacher for 10 years back in the 90s. Um, and because I was a new teacher and because of the way we track kids, I ended up with lots of students that were struggling with math, mainly because of their ADHD. And I would say not because of the ADHD, but the way we were teaching students in general. And because I was a physics major, really not a math person, I taught from a, a point of like, how do you use math in the real world? How do you do this physically? So we did lots of cutting things up, a lot of building stuff, 
a lot of calculator-based laboratories, you know, changing activities every, you know, 10 to 12 minutes in a 50-minute period. Hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously that's good technique just for students in general, but for students that are having a hard time concentrating or are really not engaging in the content, it's a, it's a good way to help them connect gotcha. what they're doing in the classroom to the real world. Jim, thanks for the call. We just have a few moments left. Jessica, how can teachers uh, like Jim who want to connect with students with ADHD, uh, do you have a quick thought for them? I think he's doing it exactly right, like meeting students where they're at and helping them learn in ways that they can learn best. Um, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, dyslexia, there are a lot of learning disabilities that are really common with ADHD. And so finding workarounds, finding ways that the students can learn best with those struggles is a really wonderful thing. Thanks for that call, Jim. And Jessica, just briefly, for somebody who's maybe just gotten that diagnosis, leave us with uh, 20 seconds of, of hope for them. Yeah, I mean, it's really treatable. There's a ton of strategies, and there's a huge community that's incredibly supportive. So you're definitely not alone if this sounds familiar, and there's definitely support out there for you. Jessica, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Jessica McCabe, creator, writer, and star of the YouTube channel How to ADHD, author of the forthcoming book How to ADHD, an insider's guide to working with your brain, not against it. That's scheduled to come out this January. She joined us for ADHD Awareness Month. Coming up tomorrow on Central Time, migraines can be a debilitating condition for a lot of people. Check out the causes of migraines and the latest on research and treatment of the problem and efforts to bring the latest research on board to improve treatment of migraines. And it's this week's edition of Food Friday with advice on cooking and baking with apples, even the ones that don't look so pretty. Join in with your favorite apple recipe email, ideas at WPR.org. That and more coming up tomorrow here on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Volunteering after retirement has been shown to benefit your physical and mental health in addition to helping your community. Still, the number of retirement-age adults who volunteer has dropped to only about 26% over the last couple of years. That's according to the consulting firm AgeWave. So what would it take to get more of this potential volunteer pool of 70 million people to volunteer? Our next guest is a philanthropy expert with us for a look at the benefits of getting involved and what we could do to make volunteering more accessible and appealing for seniors. You can join in at 800-642-1234. If you are retired, do you volunteer or have you done it in the past? Where do you offer your time, talent, skills? How did you get involved initially? And if you are in an organization that relies on volunteers, make a pitch for maybe retirees to give it a shot. Join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Lisa Dietlin is a keynote speaker, author, and founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. Lisa, welcome back to Central Time. Oh, happy to be here, Rob. Now, I don't know how scientific these numbers are on the percentage of retirees volunteering. Some anecdotes and some data out there suggest that's going down. Do you have thoughts on why that might be? Uh, yes, I absolutely do. And it is a concern in our field. I think the number one reason is COVID. Obviously, when COVID happened, a lot of organizations had to think about how were they going to engage with volunteers. And I think those people that are retired 
We generally think they're a little bit older, and I think there became a fear about their health and their safety. Even though nonprofits took measures to make sure that volunteering, once they figured out how to do it <laughs> safely, um, that that could occur, I think there's still that mindset, that leftover, maybe we call it the hangover effect of COVID of, am I going to be safe? And I kind of got out of the habit. I wanted to bring up that last point there, getting out of the habit with this disruption where very understandable why volunteer programs would come to a (laughs) halt there. And then once maybe that new uh, cohort of people didn't start right after retirement, once people, you know, dropped out of whatever, maybe a weekly routine or something like that, maybe they just didn't get back into it. I I think that's absolutely correct. And I think because also volunteering can be that, you know, the studies showed that um, volunteering in groups or with a buddy or a friend or a neighbor makes you more likely to volunteer to show up. So when we were all isolated, I think we forgot how to do that again, Rob. I think we forgot how to come back. And so, for instance, I volunteer at the Greater Chicago Food Depository and One thing that I've learned, because I bring those um, individuals who run that program into my class that I teach, they said they had to really reshift their thinking because they were always based on a corporate model. They would go into companies in Chicago, you think Boeing's or Walgreens or, you know, any of the big corporations here, and they would ask for volunteers and they would come. They had never gone to the singular individual level. And I think many nonprofits mirrored that and they're still struggling with how do we get to that person who retired maybe early because of COVID maybe during COVID maybe after COVID and is feeling a little anxious we don't have the system in place to reach them and yet we need them so much to be able to fulfill our mission. Can you mention uh, talk about a little bit about the uh, the benefits of volunteering especially after we retire? Oh, the benefits are just tremendous. First of all, is that social aspect. It's that gregariousness. It's putting you out into community. So it alleviates depression, anxiety. It alleviates, you know, um, what do we call that? You know, sitting's the new smoking, you know. (laughs) I, I read a study where it said, you know, the average retiree watches 47 hours of television. You have to sit down to watch a lot of that TV. And I was like... Oh my gosh, you know, I love my streaming programs, but um, it makes us be less sedentary. You know, we're up and we're moving. Generally, like when I'm at the food bank, you know, I'm up and I'm packing boxes or I'm, you know, repackaging um, boxes of apples or whatever happens to be the project for the day. So I think it helps with your mental health to alleviate, you know, perhaps depression or isolation. It helps with your anxiety if you're feeling anxious about this new act of your life, your last chapter, your third chapter, whatever we want to call it, the third act. And it also allows you to, um, you know, be physically active. We know that as we age, we tend to become more sedentary and getting out and volunteering helps with that. And that's part of making your health better. And besides volunteering, studies have shown you're just happier and healthier when you volunteer. Your blood pressure comes down, you know, your rate of heart disease, you're just more active. Talking to Lisa Dietlin with the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy, talking about volunteering, especially for retirees. You can join in if you are a volunteer of any age at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring on a caller now. Guy is with us in Madison. Guy, hello. Hi. 
I just wanted to mention an organization that's uh, nationwide and statewide and very active in Madison. It's called Retired and Senior Volunteer Program, RSVP. Uh, they have a wonderful uh, uh, staff that uh, lines people up according to their hobbies, interests, talents, and uh, do a marvelous job of just matching them with the right uh, volunteer opportunity. And, uh, you know, they can decide on how much or how little, and and they do a really good job of working on your your own schedule. Guy, thanks a lot for the recommendation. I've heard of this uh, RSVP, Lisa, that idea of reaching out to an organization that can be uh, basically a matchmaker between uh, volunteers and organizations. Good idea? Absolutely. It's a great idea. And I think Guy, thank Guy um, for that um, sharing that information. RSVP is an amazing organization, as is Volunteer match.org and many cities have um, local organizations that do that that act as that filter for volunteering especially major urban cities i'm not sure about the rural parts of wisconsin but i definitely know madison milwaukee some of the bigger cities green bay would have um, an entity it could be tied to the county it could be an independent nonprofit organization a branch of rsvp that you know one-stop shopping basically rob that you you know, put in your application and they will help match you. And I'd love to share, you know, with our listeners that there's different types of volunteering you can do. You know, this term skilled volunteer. Have you heard about that, Rob? This idea of taking your skills Mm -hmm. and using them at a nonprofit organization. So if you were a lawyer, you might say, hey, I could review contracts. If you were an accountant, you could say, hey, I can help with your audit. If you did graphic design, you could say, hey, I could help you you know, design your invitations for your gala, for your golf outing. So if you have a skill that you do well or did well in your career, and you might be missing it a little bit because, you know, when we retire from something we've done, we might miss it a little bit. Think about turning that around and offering that skill and being a skilled volunteer. That's a category we call a skilled volunteer for a nonprofit. Thanks for that call. We'll go to uh, Margo now in Menominee. Margo, hi. Hi, Rob. Um, I live in a town about 17,000 people, and I'm saying that I, I'm disagreeing with the speaker that maybe what's happening in Chicago, but I think that in my little rural community, my church is back up with its twice-a-year thrift um, sale schedule. Friends of the Library is back up with its twice-a-year book sale schedule. Um, I'm also volunteering for Music Over Monoman, which is through Friends of the Library. We're up and running here, Rob. Excellent, Margo. Glad to hear it. Now, Lisa, you weren't saying that nobody's up and running at this point, but uh, the gears might still be turning a little slowly for some organizations. Well, and and I love I love when people challenge me, Margo. <laughs> this is a great conversation to have. I do agree with you that nonprofits are back up and running. My point was that I think some of us who have retired and um, might be a little bit more hesitant, as well as the nonprofits still trying to figure out how do they navigate these waters. Absolutely, you are 100% correct that we have figured it out. We are through COVID. Um, we're living with it now. Um, we are figuring out how we engage volunteers 
Um, I just think it might be a little slower than it was before COVID began. All right, Margo, good luck with the library sale. Thanks for calling in. We're talking to philanthropy expert Lisa Dietlin about volunteering, especially in retirement. The benefits, why retiree volunteering numbers are a little bit down, how we can get them back up. And you could join in at 800-642-1234. Do you volunteer where and why? What do you think you get out of it, if anything? Do you have a volunteer activity you would recommend to other people, maybe to retirees? Are you in an organization that needs volunteers? Tell us about it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Ferret. We continue our conversation with Lisa Dietlin, author and founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. We're talking about the importance of volunteers, especially retiree volunteers, what we can do to make volunteering more accessible and appealing for seniors and for everybody. You could join in with your volunteer story at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Lisa, I want to talk about the organization side here. Uh, thinking about maybe a small uh, nonprofit or service group that thinks, you know, we'd love to have volunteers. Uh, we don't really have time to train new volunteers to do stuff. Uh, how can an organization like that think about uh, ways they could use volunteers without taking up all their limited staff time just to make it happen? Right. Oh, that's a great question. You know, um, I take a phrase called train the trainer, you know, uh, train a volunteer, ask a couple of people who might be volunteering for you already, if they would take a day, an activity, a time frame, and if they would be the lead on it, and then put out a call, you know, we don't know the power of our social media, as well as the people who volunteer asking them, can they each bring a friend? And have somebody be in charge of the Monday volunteering, the Tuesday volunteering. Maybe it's the Wednesday morning volunteering, the Wednesday afternoon. But people, especially leaders in nonprofit or leaders in leaders, excuse me, leaders in corporations who've retired, are looking for something to do. And the thought that's coming to me right now is I have a, a dear friend who got involved with after Hurricane Katrina, and all he wanted to do was answer the phone lines through the American Red Cross. But they figured out pretty quickly that he was a retired CEO. And all of a sudden, he was in charge of the Thursday night volunteers. And they're still meeting. That group is still meeting and getting together all these years later, Rob, because of the camaraderie they had. So if you're a small organization and you don't have a director of volunteer engagement, you don't have the time to do it, find that person who's showing up and helping you Perhaps it's a, um, a spouse or a partner of one of your staff members who's, you know, retired and maybe driving them crazy at home and they can take over the volunteer. Get creative and thinking about it. I always say in the summer when, uh, you know, our young people come home from college, ask them if they'll take a day or a time or if they'll help organize it. You know, it doesn't have to be all the time that they show up, you know, every day for 365 days or every week for 52 weeks, but maybe they would take a spot in an opportunity. Let's go back to our callers now. Maria is with us in Green Bay. Maria, hi. Hi, how are you? Good. What did you want to bring up, Maria? Yeah, I think this is a great um, topic as I myself work for a nonprofit um, for civic engagement to register new American um naturalized potential voters. and uh, But I wanted to talk about my experience as a volunteer, as someone that is getting into the workforce. I've actually been able to 
get a job based on all my volunteers. So even from college uh, to mid-profession to changing a career, it all happened thanks to the volunteering that I was doing in that preparation. And it was all based on um, what we're saying here, based on the skills that I had, and I was able to volunteer those, which later became a job for me. Maria, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, Lisa, that reminds me, you know, once upon a time, I decided, hey, maybe I'll try volunteering at a community radio station uh, <laughs> with no intention of that being my career. <laughs> and here I am. So Maria's not the only one with that experience. And we're looking at younger people now where that volunteer thing may lead to some other stuff, too. Absolutely. That often happens. I can't tell you that, Maria, congratulations. I can't tell you the number of times I've heard that exact story and your story, Rob. And I often think, too, I don't know about you, Rob, but I had a bunch of friends retire in their early to mid-50s, and all of them all of a sudden were turning 60 this year and are are a little bit bored. So I tell them, go volunteer, and and you might find a job. Um, I have a dear friend who, you know, got laid off, and she's been looking for a job, and she's down in the dumps. And, you know, that anxiety we were talking about, depression, guess what she does? She goes and works with the animals at the animal shelter. She goes and helps, you know, transport dogs when they're being moved, she takes care of them, works the hospital. She doesn't do it all the time, but I tell you what, it lifts her mood every time and gives her more energy to get back in that job search. Thanks a lot for that call at 800-642-1234. Talking with Lisa Dietland, philanthropy expert, founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy, talking about volunteering, uh, retirees in particular, but not only retirees. Still time for you to join in with your volunteer experience at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Lisa, something that's been emerging here is uh, the variety of volunteer experiences. People might, you know, narrow in on a couple things that they assume volunteers do. Can you talk about uh, some of just the, the wide variety of opportunities out there? Oh my gosh, there is everything. It is so wide. It is as wide as the job market is. So, you know, you can do like I do and volunteer at the food bank and you can repackage food and so that it goes out to people. You can do what my friend does and we've talked about cats and dogs. You could read to children in a hospital. You could clean up the riverfront in the spring or pick up litter, you know, at different times of the year. There are so many things. If you have a passion about something, you can find a volunteer opportunity. You know, you can go and visit with senior citizens. You could do a talent night for them. You know, those are called like spot volunteers where you drop in and you do your thing and then you leave. Or you could be a regular volunteer that shows up every Tuesday to play games with the children that are hospitalized. You could visit veterans in a veteran center. You could help um, military people that, and wives that are struggling or, or uh, husbands or partners where their spouses and partners have been deployed overseas. You could take on, you know, child care or mentoring responsibilities for a nonprofit organization to help an overworked parent. The sky is literally the limit of things. You know, we hear about the hero flights, the medical flights, taking our World War II veterans and our Korean War veterans to Washington, D.C. That is all volunteers, Rob. That is all volunteers. I mean, yes, there are professional staff that are helping, but so many of the people accompanying and chaperoning those individuals to Washington, D.C. for those flights that we see on the news, 
those are volunteers. So let your imagination run. You know, I'm going to Egypt next year and I want to go on an archaeological dig. I want to volunteer and people go, well, maybe not Egypt, but how about Jamestown? And then I realized there's an archaeological dig in Southern Illinois. So let your mind go wild. Let's go back to our callers now. Mark is with us in Madison. Mark, hi. No, Mark in Madison. There we go. Mark, hi. Yes. Hey, uh, um, I got into volunteering at the Madison Area Food Pantry Garden. There's several gardens around the area, and our motto is we plant, we grow, we feed. So um, it's, it was. Uh, I got into it right around COVID, and I could be outside. Great exercise, fresh air, awesome people, and uh, serving a positive purpose. So uh, it's great fun, and, uh, yeah, we, we grow the food and give it to people that need it. Excellent, Mark. Thanks a lot for sharing that experience with us, Lisa. Uh, for people, especially for people who like gardening and don't view it as a as a struggle, like me, that <laughs> might be a great volunteer opportunity. Oh, absolutely. I wanted to ask Mark, you know, was he a gardener before? Because, you know, there's those with green thumbs and those with brown thumbs. But I think either way, if you had a green thumb or a brown thumb, doing what Mark's doing is amazing. And you could learn how to grow our own food. You know, we are so far removed from knowing where our food comes from. And I think that's a wonderful way to give back. And as Mark pointed out, he was outdoors, you know, mm-hmm. a little, felt a little bit safer, um, felt in community with people during COVID. I mean, he's checking all the boxes. Thanks for the call, Mark. Marcus is with us now in Milwaukee. Marcus, hi. Hey, Rob. Um, so I volunteer for Habitat for Humanity uh, Restore because I do remodeling and construction. And so they have me price stuff on the dock. And they're receiving mere, uh, materials as well as I also volunteer at the actual physical sites. And they'll usually assign me some other volunteers because I know how to do drywall and I have a business that I'm able to teach people. And Marcus, working at the ReStore now as a construction person, do you get to just see cool stuff come through, like fixtures and things like that? Yeah, and I actually probably end up spending uh, my... I was going to ask that. It's profitable on their end, so, you know, it works out well. They get you coming come and going there, Marcus. Thanks a lot for the call. Well, but there's that skilled volunteering there you were talking about, Lisa. Marcus has skills, and he's putting them to use in a, a couple different ways. Absolutely, he is. And, you know, that reminds me of a story. When my mom retired, um, she wanted to work at the ReStore, Marcus, but it was in northern Michigan, and... They didn't have a place for her. So then they sent her to the church and then they sent her to this place. And my mom goes, no, 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 no. I want to work at the ReStore, Habitat for Humanity ReStore. So I would say to those nonprofits listening, listen to what your volunteers want to do. They might be willing to help somewhere else for a moment. But if they want to work on the dock like Marcus and they want to price things and teach people drywalling, don't have them doing something they don't want to do because they won't stick around. They might do it once or twice. But listen to what your volunteers want to do. Thanks for that call, Marcus. Lisa, just in our last half a minute or so, I hear again and again about uh, a great thing in life, and particularly after retirement, is making sure we have a sense of purpose. How, How big a part can volunteering play in that? Oh, it's a huge part of it. You know, I would say to everybody who's listening, uh, you know, to live an amazing life, you have to give back. And you don't know the difference you're going to make by that ripple in the pond of your volunteering. So find something that stirs your heart. Grab a friend, grab a neighbor, make a friend while you're volunteering. Realize it adds value to the nonprofit organization. It's a position they don't have to hire. And go out and change the world. Lisa, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. 
Thank you. That's Lisa Dietland, keynote speaker, author, and founder of the Institute of Transformational Philanthropy. We talked to her about the decline in retiree volunteers. She gives advice on how to get involved. You can keep sharing your volunteer stories at any age on the Ideas Network Facebook page.